You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Welcome to a new episode of the Tech Tank Podcast, where we take palatable bites and turn them into small bits. In today's episode, we're going to talk about diversifying our tech workforce. Even with the investments made to educate and train computer and data scientists in the United States, the fields of science, technology, engineering, and math, commonly known as STEM, are widely underrepresented by Black, Latino, and other Indigenous populations. In fact, Black undergrads make up 13% of the student population, but only 9% of graduates come out with degrees in science and engineering. Meanwhile, Black workers comprise 11% of all jobs, but only 9% of STEM jobs. There's been some research by the AI Now Institute, which has argued that the major tech companies like Facebook and Google have low representation of people of color, especially Black Americans in their workforce, who comprise, get this, only 2.5% of Google's workforce and 4% of both Facebook and Microsoft. Friends, these disparities in representation have long-standing ties to historic inequities in people in America. And more important, they suggest a disconnect between the world's leading marketplaces and skilled workers of color. As technology makes its way into every aspect of our daily lives, this lack of representation comes with consequences. And if you've been following my work, it can result in bias when we start looking at emerging technologies like artificial intelligence. So I'm happy today to have a guest that I have humbly admired from the sidelines. He is one that has been courageous in his educational leadership, and he has focused on ways that we need to diversify the tech pipeline. President Freeman Rabowski has served as the president of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, also known as UMBC, since 1992, and will be retiring at the end of the spring semester this year. He chaired the National Academies Committee that produced the 2011 report, Expanding Underrepresented Minority Participation, America's Science and Technology Talent at the Crossroads. He was named in 2012 by President Obama to chair the President's Advisory Commission on Educational Excellence for African Americans. His accolades are extensive. In 2008, he was named one of America's best leaders by U.S. News and World Report. Time Magazine has also named him one of America's 10 best college presidents and one of the most influential people in the world in 2012. And more recently, he received the American Council on Education's Lifetime Achievement Award in 2018 and was named a recipient of the University of California, Berkeley, Clark Kerr Award. President Rabowski, you see why I have been waiting all this time to get you on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Dr. Lee. And please, let's just go with Freeman and Nicole. Go right oh, ahead. let's do this. Listen, I have to tell you, I know we're a little bit late, as some people might be saying when it comes to Black history, but for you and I, it is every day, all day, 365. And this is a conversation that goes way beyond just Black students. And I want to get a little bit more into that. But I know you have spent your entire life in the civil rights space, starting to when you were just 12 years old, participating in the Children's March for Civil Rights. 
I always get this question as a person who's a sociologist of how do we get here? So let's start with that question. How has that childhood experience in the civil rights movement shaped where you are today? I want to point that out because I know there are a lot of people listening that are trying to figure out how you have such an extensive bio. I appreciate that. And people are sometimes surprised because the name is Rabowski. I am African-American and grew up as a child of color, a black child in Birmingham, and had the privilege of listening to Dr. King. And he said at one point what we were doing would have an impact on kids who had not yet been born. And I was so inspired by him that I did march and I did spend a horrific week in jail with the other children. And the message that he gave us was this, that tomorrow could be better than today. But that would only happen if we were empowered to know we could be a part of that change. We had to be the change. And that's for me, that's how I got here. It's all about what I can do to be the change, to support people, to let young people know they can be a part of what we need to do to produce the kinds of leaders that we need. Now, I did my dissertation on the civil rights movement when I was at Northwestern. And part of the finding that I came up with being a beneficiary of people whose efforts like yourself and Dr. King actually led me to universities like Northwestern. Times have changed, Freeman. And I want to talk a little bit about that. The days in the Children's March of the Civil Rights Movement to what we're seeing today with Black Lives Matter, as well as other social movements that are being led by indigenous people of color. Talk a little bit about how things have also changed for us in these times. Sure. And you said something earlier that I think is very important. This is about people of color, African-Americans, Latinos, but it's about any group that's outside of what we consider the mainstream group of people who have been able to do well. So it's also first-generation college kids, as an example. But what we don't realize is first times have changed because in the 60s, only 10% of people in general had graduated from college. Literally, it was only 3 to 4% of Blacks. We talked about Black and white then more than any other groups, but it was only 11% of whites. Today, we still are up to only 30% of Americans. And when you break it down by race, the fastest growing group, Latino, is only not quite 20%. Blacks are 23, 24%. Whites even are still only about 38%. What am I saying? I'm saying that even today, two-thirds of America's families have never had anyone graduate from college. And I think that is critical. And then one of the uh, data points you gave earlier involving the fact that we may be, for Blacks, 13% of the population, but only 9% of the STEM degrees. Well, when that number is given from the National Science Foundation, those STEM degrees include the social sciences, which are very important. But I want to make this point. As bad as things are in terms of underrepresentation in the social sciences, they are much worse for people talking about computer science or engineering or chemistry or physics. And so we have to look at that distinction between the natural sciences and engineering and the social sciences, not because we don't need some in both areas, but the numbers are abysmally small in that natural sciences and engineering, very small in the social sciences too, but it's much worse in computing as an area. That point is really significant because I think we always read the statistics around the number of PhD students, among Black students in particular, growing. 
but we also see that the areas in which those numbers are being achieved are still quite low when it comes to the natural sciences. I want to go there because I got two kids and one was supposed to be a STEM kid and he landed up not. And I got another one who went into a robotics class and she was the only girl. So she moved away from that field as well. What's driving that so that we're not seeing this level of attraction or graduation? It's great questions. First of all, one of my recent articles that my colleague and I wrote in Issues in Science and Tech says that in 2011, when we wrote the report on underrepresentation for the National Academies of Sciences, 2.2% of the PhDs in the natural sciences and engineering were awarded to Blacks. That was 10 years ago, slightly over 10 years ago, 2.2%. Today it's 2.3%. What I can tell you is in the natural sciences and engineering, we have not moved the needle. That's number one. Number two, what I talk about in my TED talk is the fact that we still view science and tech in our universities, the first year or two of classes as weed out courses. In fact, the data will tell you two thirds of Americans who begin with a major in one of these disciplines will leave it within the first year or two. And it's stunning, of course, that only 20% of students of color, of Blacks, Latinos, Native Americans who start in those areas will make it, will graduate with a bachelor's in one of those disciplines. But for whites, it's only 32, 33%. And for Asians, only 41%. So for all groups, the vast majority of students who begin in chemistry or computer science will lead their majors. And what really surprises people is often the more prestigious the university, the greater the probability that students who may have come in with a near-perfect SAT will leave science in the first year or two. Why is the question. One reason is really good students are not accustomed to getting Cs. And if a student gets a C or below, that student usually will become very discouraged. Students are more likely to do better in the social sciences and the humanities if they are well-prepared because they can read and write and think. So they can get at least a B. But in my math class, I can give you five problems, three you've seen before, two you've never seen before. And before you know it, the time is out and you are with a D on that test, even though you worked hard. So there are a number of things we need to do. What I say in our TED Talk, based on the work we've done here at UMBC, is that we must look at great expectations, high expectations, but not just for the students, Nicole, for us as faculty. What else do we need to do to make sure that more students succeed, number one. Number two, we have to build community among the students so they support each other and it's not cutthroat where they don't want to help each other. Number three, it does take people in any discipline to bring in younger people into that discipline. And so the lab work and getting those experiences, and when you talk about robotics and giving that young girl a chance to be with other girls in robotics courses and in girls that code and those kinds of things. We have a lot of programs throughout Center for Women in IT to let young women know that there are other women doing that work. And finally, we need rigorous evaluation. We do a lot of things in this country in the name of STEM, but the ineluctable question really is what matters and what works. It's not enough just to say we had a thousand students go through this program. Did any of them end up with the skills they needed and the attitude to ensure greater success in STEM? That must be the question.
I love all of that. When I'm not doing things at Brookings, I'm actually a fellow with the Center for Gender Equity in STEM for Women and Girls of Color out of Arizona State University with Dr. Kim Scott. And yeah, in the work that she's been doing to try to get more women and girls on the grid when it comes to STEM technology for decades is, is so important. So I totally agree with you on that. And I want to push it too, because you were coming up my lane now there, Freeman, when you were talking about kids getting C's and D's and math. That was me and to a certain extent, my son, some of that also was cultural because I think as a black woman, uh, a black female student, we often heard from our family members, I'm not good at math. And that sort of stuck with us. The first thing I tell women, American women of all races, is the worst thing you can do is to tell your daughter that you are not good in math. Because the first thing that happens to a daughter or a son when that person does not do well, is to say, well, I'm like my mother. So people will say, what should I say? You might say you haven't had enough success in math, for example. But what you want to say is, but I, I'm still learning. I can still learn. Let's look at it together. Let's work on it together. So it's attitude, it seems to me, and mind that's really important. And I think Kimberly Scott, who's a mentee, doing great work out there. We're doing great work here at UMBC on the Center for Women in IT. And one of the things we do is to take those young women who are willing to become scholars in computing engineering and have them become ambassadors to younger girls in our community to work on ways of helping them not only in computing, but in the mathematical sciences and other areas. But first of all, when people say, what's the most important thing? First, we must teach our children to read and think well and to work on word problems at an early age. We need many more word problems with kids at an early age. So they can see the connection between reading, thinking, real life, and mathematics. Secondly, the more experienced kids get with computers and games that have some educational value, the, the greater the comfort level. But, but I would say this to you, even the students who come to college well-prepared, with high test scores, with high grades or scores on AP exams, can be discouraged within the first year or two if the institution if the university hasn't thought about how to look at the data to see who is succeeding, who is not, and why is it that so many students don't succeed? The big problem with mindset is that so often we in STEM think it's not for a lot of people. And the people can make it, will get the A's and they stay here. But if they are having some trouble, they probably should leave it. That's one of our problems. And the result is that only about 5% of those bachelor's degrees in our country associated with these areas compared to 11% in Europe. We have fewer students in these disciplines and we see the problem because we have so many more jobs available in technology that we have graduates right now. We are very proud at UMBC to produce almost 30% of the IT graduates. And that's, these are students of all races, but at least 20% are black, a substantial number are Latino, for example. And so we are working to have more women, people of color, in our graduates who go out, some to grad school and many into the workforce. Wow. You know, and, and that's why I, again, humbly sit on the side watching your moves because you've been really plowing through this problem that we have, which leads me to this other question. I mean, you are a college president and one in terms of the representation that we see among people of color, particularly black people with regards to that state. 
tell me what motivated you to really want to be in that administrative role. Because I also know, Freeman, some people who are like, don't give me nothing administrative. Right, right. <laughs> no, it's, it's a very good point. I often look for people who don't want the job as good candidates to have the job because people sometimes see the job and think it's it's about the prestige. But no, being a president is very hard. I work with new presidents in the Harvard program and I coach presidents. It's very challenging, but rewarding work. But for me, it was not so much about being a president. I wanted to be involved in the excitement of learning. I wanted to see more students enjoying the work, whether it was in mathematics or in literature. And I wanted to be a part of a culture that supported young people in teaching them to have a strong sense of self. And just so happens because I have a big mouth, as time went on, I did more complaining and making suggestions. And people would say at every level, then you do it, then you do it. And and more and more from my early years in grad school. And I just saw that need to help people come together to reach that goal of greater student success and greater success for young faculty. And that's how I got here. Now I want to talk a little bit about the UMBC Meyerhoff Scholars Program. This is your signature program. It's nationally, internationally known, and it has encouraged historically marginalized students to major in STEM. So I already know when they meet you, you're like the Joe Clark of the STEM industry when it comes to college. But this program is even more special. So tell us a little bit more about that program and its success. Sure. The good news is that I am less involved now. I, I know a lot of my students of all types, but we've got so many faculty administrators who are one of all races, and as you might expect, heavily white, but a few people of color who are involved and good staff members with Meyerhoff's represent the gold standard in STEM in America. We are the number one producer of African-Americans who go on to get PhDs in the natural sciences and engineering, and the number one producer of black baccalaureates who go on to get MD PhDs with students who are on the faculties from Duke to Stanford to Harvard. So People are replicating our program using funds from Howard Hughes. We've replicated the program at Chapel Hill and at Penn State. And we're in the process of replicating with Chan Zuckerberg funding at Berkeley and San Diego. And in all cases, it is about how to make sure the students we accept, many of whom are of color, others are first-generation college students, others middle-class kids. How do we make sure that they not only succeed at the undergrad level, but that they want to go on and to get graduate degrees. And we've now produced well over a thousand of those students. But the Sherman Scholars Program, by the way, is also majoring in STEM. And interestingly, these are students who will one day become teachers in challenging schools in the Baltimore area, for example. And these are majors for people, many of whom will teach at the middle school level, which is very unusual to have a math major or a chemistry major teaching eighth grade. So. Sherman scholars model after Meyerhoff is becoming better and better known. Let's stay here for a second, right? Because this program is producing a cohorts of students ready to go into these professions. But we always hear that there's not enough of us to actually fill these positions. And I constantly feel that's a disconnect in messaging and it's a disconnect in where the quality candidates are. What do we need to be doing, Freeman, to actually change this narrative? 
Let me just say that while we are the number one producer, in terms of blacks, it's, we are number one and T. North Carolina T is number two. Then you've got Spelman on some other campuses. and But you've got the University of Florida in that list. I'm very proud of them. But let me just say this to you. The fact is that while we may be the highest ranked institutions in producing them, none of us can say we're producing as many as we need to produce. We could produce three times this number if we had more funding. Because you see, you've got to give the student financial support, got to have some staffing support for the people. But we have recommended in recent articles that we start by doubling the numbers in the top 30 institutions in, in America. Top 30 in terms of production of blacks and then production of Latinos who go on to get PhDs. We need more at that level to have some blacks, some Latinos on the faculties of universities to inspire other people to think about it. So those are the issues. We've got to increase the numbers in the most productive places while helping other institutions learn how to produce any at all. Because most universities don't have two or three who are going to get PhDs per year. Yeah. And I'm publishing a book and I actually share the experience of being the largest cohort of sociology PhDs in my class. And we were only eight out of 20. <laughs> we were the largest class in the history of my department. That says a lot. And that was almost 20 years ago. What you need to know is that when the Meyerhoff scholars and some of my other students go off to the most prestigious programs, from biochemistry to computer science to even economics, which is another area where we have such a paucity, you will see they will be one, usually the only one in the class, or maybe one or two. We're talking, in fact, For the entire national infrastructure in this country in science and tech, looking at the national agencies, the percent of black PhDs would be under 2% today in 2022. So we're talking about just barely scratching the surface. We need transformational things happening. I'm very impressed with the new major funding from Howard Hughes. They are in $2 billion. And then a place like Hopkins has a special program for grad students with some Bloomberg money for $150 million. But we need, and NIH has begun some things in that round. We need much more attention paid to substantive evidence-based strategies to move the needle. That must be the name of the game. Yeah, and I want to go a little bit more into updating the findings of your initial report, but I want to stay here for just a second because I was actually speaking with someone yesterday who made this point about why can't we get this diversity, equity, and inclusion thing right? For the people that are listening, we've talked so far about the strategies for getting people into the pipeline, but how important is it once young people, early professionals, older professionals getting into the STEM pipeline for them to have something waiting for them on the other side. Right. We need to look at the the entire continuum. I was talking uh, with the president of Hopkins and his group today about their strategic plan involving a roadmap, as they call it. And they do look at faculty, staff, students, representation, postdocs, and then to the faculty itself. We need programs in all these areas. The area that we say in our study that is most critical first, we need many more well-prepared undergraduates going on to grad school because most of them are wiped out, weeded out in the first year or two. We need more at that level and well-prepared. Number two, we need to look at the graduate programs and give students the support not only to succeed academically, but to be talking to them about employment, both 
in the academy and in jobs in the broader society that require STEM backgrounds. And then we need to talk in a very meaningful way about what not just mentoring, but being a champion should mean. Because it's not enough to be passively giving advice as people come to you. We need scientists who will knock down doors for students. It takes that sometimes. Mike Summers is a member of the National Academy of Sciences and one of the professors here in biochemistry. He makes sure not only that the students get PhDs and postdocs, but that he's working with them to knock down doors to make sure they get a faculty position and then to support them in getting that first big R01 grant. And it takes that kind of ongoing mentoring and advocating to get the person to the position of being established in a science lab in a company or a tenured faculty member. And that's something I think is really important because the pandemic demonstrated how important science is and technology, you know, and other factors, mathematics to this new economy we're in. And it seems like these industries are quickly, even in the development of the vaccine, are quickly relying upon the natural sciences as a way to sort of innovate all sectors. But yet, Let's talk about this. When some of us do get into those spaces, they're not good fits either. How do we deal with that type of challenge for some of the students going into these companies? First of all, two people I want to bring up. One would be Dr. Kismikia Corbett, first Black woman in the world to create a vaccine. She led the team with Dr. Bonnie Gray, Bernie Graham at NIH. And they. so when you got that Moderna vaccine and the Pfizer you were using their technology. Very proud of her. I mean, we had never, nobody had even thought about the fact that there's never been a black woman in the world to create a vaccine. All right. So when little girls see her, all of a sudden they begin, of any race, they begin to think, wow, maybe I can do that. She's in her 30s. She's just moved from NIH to Harvard. And she does work with those companies in that way. But what I want you to think about is the fact that we need to be identifying the, we have other blacks, for example, another black who is at, Moderna, who has a PhD from UCLA and is working there and doing well. We need to identify these people and use them as examples and listen to their experiences because it's not just the question of representation at all these levels. It is the real question is what is the experience of the person? Is the experience one that leads the person to say, I want to be here? I want others to come here. Bad news travels fast. We rarely get the good news. And so one of the strategies is to look at where people who have gotten PhDs and postdocs, where are they now and what are their experiences? We need much more understanding of those issues. And that's why your kind of background in the social sciences is very important as we do the evaluation of what's happening right now. That's right. That's right. Look, I tell people all the time, in the space of artificial intelligence, Freeman, you need a sociologist sitting with an engineer because of the implications of some of the technologies. So I think we're finding our way. Don't get me wrong. My mother didn't really know what I was going to do with a sociology degree. She really didn't. (laughs) (laughs) She really did not. She was not for it when I first said I was doing it. In the spirit of the social sciences, though, Kismikia, majored in the sciences, biology and sociology. And she did it because she wanted to get the larger context. And it was very helpful to her because even after getting the, she went to UMBC, got a PhD from Chapel Hill, working at NIH as a, doing the postdoc and then leading this team. When it was time for the study to see how effective the, the vaccine was, she was adamant that we had to find enough blacks and Latinos to be in the study. We were having this, this shortage of blacks 
willing to, to trust the process to be in the study. And this is when my wife and I became a part of her study because we needed to say to people here in Maryland, this is, we've got a black woman doing this. You've got to be able to show sometimes you've got somebody like yourself. Otherwise, people are saying, no, we don't trust this. We know all the bad stuff from the Tuskegee study from others. So this is one of the reasons we need more people, women and people of color, as a part of the think tank, the people who go about creating the vaccines. The same thing in mental health. My colleague and my mentor, Dr. Kafwi Zarasa, is at Duke University, won the leading neuroscience award two years ago for young investigators, tenured faculty, has developed a pacemaker for the brain to address mental disorders. And this is the pacemaker that doesn't require silicon. And if you can imagine people seeing a neuroscientist, MD, PhD, focused on mental health at that level, it begins to shift the thinking of people about who should be in this work and whether we can trust the work that's done. We need many more examples like that. Yeah, and it has such large implications. And I'm really glad that you shared that because a lot of times these technologies are not contextualized, tested, evaluated on the subjects of Dr. Fakot Payton calls it the lived experiences, right, of populations and the extent to which we actually contextualize it so that we're not creating these predatory outcomes. You keep mentioning these brilliant women. That woman, that brilliant woman and one of my mentees is the parent of one of my Mahal graduates who are in mathematics. So you, I don't know whether you knew it, but you bring it up all the folks who are connected to our campus. I had to tell somebody the other day that there's a very big and deep network of Black women in particular in these fields. And we're becoming much more visible over the last few years, which I'm really happy. And we like each other. You know, and Faye is in computing. The first Black woman to earn the PhD in computer science from the University of Michigan, Dr. Kyla McMullen, is another one of my students who is now on the faculty at University of Florida. And you see, as you get this first one coming through, and this has only been a few years ago, that the first one in the, for the PhD, then to get others doing it, we need many more doing it so others will say, I can do it too. That's right. That's right. I'm thinking about your report, your groundbreaking report. If you look at that report today, and I'm going to start getting us to close because I want to ask you a couple policy questions too. But what would be different about the report that you wrote in terms of expanding underrepresentation of minorities in the space? I would say that the national agencies are putting even more effort into it. I think there's still the need for greater coordination among these agencies. I know I'm on the board at Sloan Foundation. We do more in that area now with PhD programs. And so there's a need for even greater coordination among national agencies, corporate America, and foundations and the philanthropic community. But we are seeing some of the big philanthropy people putting more money into these initiatives, and we need much more. And I would say the one thing I would say, and it it may sound self-serving, we need to be investing in practices that have shown themselves to be effective. That more than anything else, rather than starting new things, there are institutions that are making a difference, and we need to build up those pipelines there while we replicate. This is what I like about Howard Hughes and some of what Zuckerberg is doing now. We need to be replicating best programs and best practices. Two questions I want to really ask. What's the role of government in all this, right? So 
a lot of the agency funding would not have been appropriated had it not been for legislators who are on those committees ensuring that we're having diversity and equity in these programs and fields. But we as a country have not been able to move this forward. So my question is, on the government side, where is the role of public policy in the equity side of the equation? And then I'm going to push it. Where's the role of government on the democratization of college in general? Because like you said, there's a lot of first generation students that just can't even get through four years, let alone community college. Right. And first of all, I do think that there is a need to look at what the national agencies are doing right now in order to determine how to build on that strength in the coordination of those initiatives. And while there are groups that are supposed to do a lot of that from the university perspective, we don't see the national agencies working so closely. So from the point of view of a customer university going to get funding, to look for funding to help with student issues, we need much more of that coordination of the efforts and much more of the asking of the question, what is moving the needle? There's some programs we've had in place for years, and we're not seeing a difference. Who is going to shake things up to move the needle? We are not doing it yet. And that's what my most recent article that Peter Henderson and I wrote in Issues in Science and Tech said. We're not moving the needle. And the only way you can do it in terms of the government is for them to look at the programs that are working and say, what are we not getting here? Why don't we have more people doing what they're doing? And that's why we need much more replication of, and looking at culture, because it's all about culture change. My newest book that my colleagues and I wrote, The Empowered University, is about the fact that it's hard as hell, quite frankly, to change the culture of a university. It's not about a few staff members on the side helping with minority issues. It's not about one person called a chief diversity officer. They cannot do it by themselves. It's got to be the people with power. Those are your deans or your provosts, your president, and most important, your senior faculty who tend not to be people of color. We have to have people who are willing to get involved in this work and who see it not as just something nice to do, but critical to the future of the democracy in America. We see this with COVID, that unless with these kinds of public health crises, if we don't have a lot of people who are representing the people being served, many people will be distrusting of whatever we come up with. We've got to have more people in science if we want the general public to trust science. Wow. And then what about those first generation college students? Like in my work, I go down to rural America, not to say that our experiences aren't culturally distinctive, but they're poor in some cases and college is not an option because they can't afford it. Yep. Several things. Number one, often can't afford it. Number two, don't really see the benefit of it. Number three, may not have the skills they need to do well here because large percentages of people from first generation college backgrounds end up in remedial courses. And what nobody wants to say is most of the students of any race who will end up with that remedial math, for example, will not end up graduating in six years. Most. And we've got so we've got to work on several things. One, what we work on at UMBC is course redesign. And how do we teach those first year courses? How do we have more collaboration? How do we use analytics to understand more about what those students need? Two, how do we look at the background the student brings to determine does the student have what it takes? So that with support, within six years, they can make it. That's a broad educational question. And how do we stop doing the same things we've done for years? Much of what we do in developmental education and in the lack of coordination between K-12, pre-K-12, and universities, we've been doing that same way for years. There's not enough teeth when talking about making sure 
that universities are working with school systems and with teachers to strengthen what happens well before college. If you give me somebody with a solid middle school reading and algebra, I can say that student has a good chance of making it in college. So it goes back to pre-K all the way through middle school, even before you get to high school. It's those kinds of, that kind of holistic thinking about this continuum that will be more important than ever. And, and this is, the media will continue to say so often, oh, people don't believe in college. Show me a family, Nicole, who has had one person graduate and doing well, who doesn't want the others to go to college. First person through, people said, I want them to go to college. And it's either college, let me say this, or post-secondary education. That's the other policy shift in our country. Many of us, even in universities, realize everybody shouldn't be, if they're not interested in college, we don't want to push them there. We need to give them some post-secondary opportunity so that they can get a skill, get a job with the idea that eventually they may go to college. But just putting people in, if they don't want to be there and they can't read well, it's lunacy. And that's what we've been doing for years and years. And when I said this years ago, people said, oh, you're being elitist. I'm saying, no, I want the student to have some success. If I'm telling you the majority who come in who can't read are not going to get a four-year degree in six or seven years, what else can we do for those students? And that's why programs like Jobs for the Future, I would say, are very important in America. You know, I was on an event just the other day with Chicago, who's over at the Department of Labor, and he said yesterday it was reported that we had the largest gap between available jobs and available workers in the tech workforce. And so I think you've been preaching to the choir for quite some time. I don't just don't think people have caught up to your steps because part of the challenge is, and one last thing I want to say before I ask you what's in the future for you. So we think of the sciences as just technology, right? And Malcolm Gladwell's book talked about kids didn't necessarily have to go to college to become the next Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. But at the end of the day, you're right. There are some kids that are going to come out as that stellar kid that actually creates this newest app. But for the most part, we need the sciences as our foundation for a whole lot of other things. And there's several things I would say. Number one, if you look at our UMBC training centers out in Howard County, Maryland, that center training about 10,000 people focuses on a number of people who don't have a college degree who want to get into STEM work, into technology, and they can get a certificate. And it's anywhere from eight months to 12 months. 15 months, they get a certificate, they get a great job. Others have a degree in humanities or whatever. And what they do is they come and they take this this certificate. And so you're going to have more people with certifications who may go on to college, who may have already graduated from college. And we need more options for people so that they can get good jobs and then move on. And the other thing I want to say is that often we tend to think somebody's either a STEM person or they are humanities and social sciences person. We need people looking at ways of connecting the discipline. So data science is an area at the intersection of computer science and statistics, but with a strong social science context. And so having people with training in the social sciences with some technology will be more important than ever. We need to stop thinking people are on one side or the other of the continuum. Oh, I agree. I keep telling my computer science friends that one, they need a sociologist as a friend, as I said, I think earlier, but more importantly, that we need to be teaching sociological implications of science in our computer science curricula. I see it. I think every computer science to be trained 
trained on some type of reading list or book list and have some instruction and how that fits into the context in which their applications are deployed. And just broadly, we take great pride here, even though more than half the students are in science and tech, in giving students a broad education. Our students still require language. I'm studying French literature and philosophy every day. I'm a mathematician. We need people who are fascinated by the humanities, just as we need students who are prepared in technology. Are you coming up my lane again? I am so excited. I have to ask this question before we wrap up. What is in store post-retirement? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm very <laughs> more excited than ever for this next chapter. I'll continue studying my French. I speak French every day with my students. Parlez-vous français? Oui, je parle français avec mes étudiants tous les jours. Okay, you went a little further than my competence. But, <laughs> but the fact is that that uh, I will be working with some things I do at Harvard right now with new presidents and provosts, but I'm also working with boards and presidents and leaders around the country with my book, The Empowered University, that we wrote. Uh, And then I am working with several of the foundations and I'll continue to do that. Well, I'm excited. First and foremost, like I said, I could not be more giddy about this opportunity to have you on our podcast. Thank you very much. You have been a role model, I think, for how we should be contextualizing the educational experience, particularly higher education, and where we're going to make a difference. And I've watched your program from the day I think I saw you on C-SPAN talking about it many years ago Yeah, when I was at the Joint Center for Political and Economic Studies. And I've trailed you ever since because I think we've got to get this right. We've had too much time getting it wrong. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And it will take all of us embracing the challenge and realizing that this underrepresentation issue in education and in STEM, these things are inextricably linked to the future of our democracy. We've got to get people to understand that. Yes, yes. I I think we might, now that we are realizing we have such a huge gap in the type of employability that is available for people. President Freeman Rabowski. I have enjoyed this conversation. And for those of you who are listening, continue to follow this man's journey. As he said, he has a book coming out and I would encourage you to actually pick up that book. And I encourage us to have him back so we can talk a little bit more about this. Here at Tech Tank, we try to take on these big issues. I consider them to be bites, B-Y-T-E's, and put them into bits so that people like you can understand them even further. We thank you for listening. We thank you, Freeman, for coming. And stay tuned for the next episode. You just never know what you're going to get with Tech Tank. Thank you. Thank you, Nicole. The book Empowered University is out. Another one will be out in the next year, but the Empowered University is out. And if they look at my TED Talk, they'll hear a lot of what I said. That's right. TED Talk, book, follow this man, please. (laughs) You have to. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.